Welcome to Across the Disciplines, a podcast produced by the ACT Office at Appalachian State University, where faculty and staff are gathered to discuss relevant issues to democratic and civic engagement. Welcome to Across the Disciplines podcast. We have with us today a panelist of four Appalachian State faculty members from various disciplines to discuss the environment and the climate crisis. Dr. Laura Ammon is Associate Professor of Religious Studies, PhD from Claremont Graduate University. Dr. Carl Campbell, Professor of History, PhD Chapel Hill. Dr. Jackie uh, Ignotova, Assistant Professor of Sustainable Development, PhD University of Maryland, College Park. And Dr. Susie Mills, Professor of Music Education, as well as a Senior Research, uh, Research Associate at the University of Johannesburg, EDD from the University of Central Florida. Welcome, folks. I'm glad that you all could uh, join us here today. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I just want to uh, ask about uh, our experience in nature. You know, I've never had anybody ever say to me, you know, I just got back from the lake or I just got back from a walk in the woods. I just spent some time down by the stream and man, I just feel worse or I feel terrible. In fact, it's the opposite, right? We feel good when we are in nature and, and nature seems to somehow do something for us and to us. Why do you think that is? This is Susie Mills. I think for years, people have for, for generations, since the beginning of time, we have celebrated the natural environment and um, we've built our cultural traditions on the natural environment and the things that, that we like to uh, celebrate uh, from the earliest earliest times in humanity had to do with seasons and cycles and everything from the moon to the water to the land being harvested or harvestable to the birth of new life in the spring and so i think it's just wired into us from mother nature other thoughts i i would suggest that there have been times here in the appalachian mountains in february that i have come back from walking in nature not terribly excited, freezing and cold and miserable. <laughs> right, <laughs> the, right. You know, yeah. I'm a historian, Carl Campbell here, and and you know, in history, we we came from nature, right? I mean, the built environment has taken you know, thousands of years to create, but we always feel ourselves in our natural elements. Yep. Yeah, Carl, you, there's something I think you say is important there, and I, I guess you remind me a little bit of folks like Jack London and others who uh, who responded sort of a, to a Darwinian view, which is that nature isn't isn't nourishing and refreshing, refreshing, but a challenge. It, it's, it, nature wants to kill us, especially in the days of COVID. It seems. Yeah, I'm sorry, Laura. I think you were going to say something. Oh no, I was just going to um, talk about. I think that there is a, a sense that we've been disconnected from nature. We may not feel that very much in Boone, um, given given our environs, but I think that people in general in our kind of postmodern globalized society are looking for a stronger connection to nature than maybe we have had. And uh, I think this turns up in, in kind of new religious movements that are interested in seeing us in a kind of symbiotic relationship to nature that we need to honor more or give more reverence to if not necessarily worship or or at least venerate nature in a way that we haven't been 
I think that there is a, a sense of wanting to not necessarily get back, although it is a little bit romantic, but also to, to recognize how interdependent we are with nature. On that note, Laura, thanks for saying that. This is Jackie Ignatova in Sustainable Development. And I, I think one of the, the key insights, um, having studied under Herman Daly, who's one of the founders of ecological economics, is that a lot of the kind of the global ecological crisis, the climate crisis, call it what you will, is, is rooted in this kind of disconnect, in this belief that we can have an economy that expands infinitely uh, without it kind of biting back. And in fact, ecological economics and other um, scholars in sustainability studies highlight the ways in which, in fact, if we, if we treat the environment in that way, um, it actually undermines the very basis of, of not only uh, the economy, but our relationships with one another, that that's actually the roots of exploitation uh, is founded in this idea that we don't have this connectedness. And so ecological economics really urges us to consider actually the economy as a subset of the environment and that the environment is really what, what allows for this all. And so I think being in nature is, is that opportunity uh, to, to realize those connections that are ever present, but may not be at the forefront uh, in consumer society. I think religion has contributed to, to the kind of negative effects that Jackie was just describing really through ideas that humans have dominion not only over um, nature but over each other because of innate or natural uh, inequalities that have somehow been built in and then um, sacred texts get used to kind of justify that continued exploitation and degradation of the environment and of it, the idea of being interconnected. Um, and I do think there are interesting religious movements pushing back against that, but I think that that dominant narrative of humans have dominion over Earth um, has led to exactly the kind of exploitation and disconnect that Jackie was describing. So, Laura, how could we have a deeper understanding about this? What are some religious texts that we could go to, uh, either in you know in in Western traditions and Eastern traditions that could help us think in, in deeper ways about nature? Are there places in some of these great and ancient texts that, uh, that elucidate a different thinking about, about nature? And what might this be? Well, I don't know about, I mean, I think that people look to those texts, those, those kind of religious foundational texts, and then read them through their cultural context. So there are people who are reading now, um, say the, the Western monotheistic canon through a particular kind of environmental lens. And I think that's also happening in Buddhism and Hinduism, that there's a, a sense that, that these traditions can lead us to a connection with nature. But I think that one of the, if you, a religious person who's looking for maybe a new way or, or a different way to connect with nature might find that in some um, other kinds of avenues. So uh, there's a, a thinker named Bron Taylor, and he is really all interested in in not just nature spirituality but how people are are kind of becoming in touch with it and he 
he's written a lot about surfer culture and how that is connected he says i mean he draws this out like to the big bang right that waves are are left on our planet from that first initial explosion that started our planet and by getting kind of in tune with them and connected with them through surfing one develops a kind of nature-based spirituality that can then from his perspective be sort of um connected to or or melded into the other traditions that you might be part of but if you're not part of that then he he suggests um what he calls dark green religion or people who are finding finding the kind of transcendent feelings of connection to something bigger than themselves out in nature in the ocean so i think you can find it in both ways but i don't know that i uh, that i can point directly to um, a set of texts that might help you dig deeper there you'd have to i think go go looking for like the stewardship movement or a movement called green islam that's uh interpreting words of the of the prophet in a way to nurture and care for earth yeah i i wonder and i don't want to put too much into this but we were just chatting really briefly before we started about you know back when i was in college we had to read some rudolph otto and the the basic idea of that you know when he's talking about religion and and correct me if i I'm remembering this wrong, but you know, religion is basically this idea of, of mystery, but also this idea of awe that we have. And, and is that the same thing you think, like when I'm out in nature and I walk in the woods and I feel that, or do you think Otto was maybe talking about something a little different? Is there, is there, is there you know, some similar characteristics between those things? Oh, I think so. I mean, so Otto is, a, Otto is a, a phenomenologist. He's interested in the actual feelings that people have when they describe themselves as being, you know, in the presence of the divine, this overwhelming, completely other than us, completely not human. <laughs> um, and and that that inspires this kind of this sense of terror, awe, right? Awe that is overwhelming, but it's compelling, right? You can't look away from it. And, and while I think that Otto was specifically trying to um, de-anthropomorphize uh, the divine, to turn the divine into something that wasn't just a bearded, wizened man sitting on a throne, but rather this larger sense of creativity. I think the experience that he describes of being both scared of, as we were kind of noting, nature can be <laughs> scary uh, and overwhelming, but also drawn to or feeling this deep need to be connected to, I think does fit a lot with how people uh, are re-envisioning or revisioning nature as part of their their spiritual life. Yeah, yeah. Jack, I see. Oh, go ahead, Carl. I had a kind of a, yeah, kind of a historical perspective on that. You know, in the United States, the Teddy Roosevelt kind of environmentalism, right at the, at the time the frontier was closing in the 1890s, if you think of that, they were talking about preserving a wilderness. I mean, their construction of this problem was something was being lost that we had to preserve. I think today we construct it a little bit differently. We environmentalists see ourselves as part of nature. It's not just some garden thing out there we're going to protect, but we too are nature. 
And it is interesting to hear you talking about, you know, the book of Genesis talks so much about dominion over the earth. But today, there, for people who are interested, it doesn't take a whole lot of Googling to find some really fascinating environmental theologians, environmental historians. Here at, at, uh, in our department at, at ASU, we have two of our best historians just wrote a book on the Civil War called The Environmental History of the Civil War, which takes nature and makes it part of the, an actor in the story of the Civil War. So I think a lot of it is, is kind of the way we construct it in the different times of yeah. place. Go ahead, Jackie. I see you nodding your head there. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that um, we've come some way from the kind of preservationist tendencies. And I think that the um, environmental justice movement has done a lot to kind of embed humans within their environment and, and recognize that the environment is where we live, work, and play. It's not just a wild nature um, distinct from uh, human activity, which always had a bit of erasure there, of course, uh, that while wilderness also included uh, Native Americans that lived there. Um, so there was always that kind of, that, that preservationist tendency has thankfully uh, through the work of, of environmental justice movements kind of situated humans within their environment and recognize that environmentalism takes different forms. Like Altieri talks about an environmentalism of the poor uh, of the ways in which people um, recognize the need to prote uh, protect their environment because they're dependent on it, because they're intimately in relationship with it. And I think finally, you know, this has now influenced a lot of um, debates within the environmental movements in the U.S., but I think we owe uh, a debt of gratitude to the environmental justice movement, to environmentalisms of the, uh, you know, emerging out of developing countries to help us to kind of appreciate uh, that, that we are at one yeah. part of that. Yeah. The initial movement to sort of recognize that um, animals might have rights, particularly great apes, um, might have rights that we need to pay attention to, I think really comes out of the global south and, and has influenced in some ways uh, environmental responses not that there haven't always been movements against animal testing and our relationship there to nature, but have kind of pushed the dialogue into a new place. I'm thinking of Bolivia and Argentina and their movements with great apes and their, their the apes um, rights to make choices for themselves and not live in captivity. And I think also the, um, the idea of relationships that Jackie brought up that we've been talking about are extremely important as we have become more global and as what we see as that playground or what did you call it the world's playground and the garden um you know if if i as a bass guitarist i have a beautiful taylor bass guitar made in the 1980s by the taylor guitar company and that wood came from you know a place in the congo basin in africa where the people who live in that neck of the woods don't really need uh, this type of ebony tree growing because of the environmental needs that they have. So what is my playground might be your forest or your garden, I guess, but we have to help each other tend the playground in order to play the music for the leisure activities, but whose leisure uh, gets to to be you know the Genesis type dominion 
over the over the garden. Uh, so I see those relationships changing in the music industry as well as as everywhere else. And uh, Appalachian just had a few years ago, we had something called the Nile Project. Uh, the other panelists here might have been involved and it was about music. Also in Africa, these musicians who came from countries up and down the Nile River and the inspiration uh, that they drew from each other and actually gave some of their political leaders because they were able to compose music together as a team when they actually looked at themselves as from very disparate parts and because they had different kinds of access to the Nile River and the use of that water was so politically provocative for them. So Susie, I want to stick with you for a little bit longer and, and ask about, um, can you turn us to some uh, pieces of music, some pieces of art that you think can help connect us to nature? Uh, maybe even at times that we're separated from nature, are there some pieces that for you come to mind that can help us to think about the environment and, or to understand the environment in a better way? I think rather than um, uh, you know suggesting particular compositions, I'm not all that up on 21st century new music, but I can say that um, sometimes I think we overlook the uh, what what musicians, especially traditional musicians in in healer um, communities, would use, and that is that is usually percussive. It's usually land-based. So for example, if I were coming to you from Cape Town, I might recommend Mbira music um, that's, that's well-known throughout Southern Africa because of the types of lumber and trees that are there but disappearing. Um, and the music of different kinds of Mbiras or Mbiras uh, is partly metal as well. And people are making their own instruments in this part of the world as people do everywhere uh, to imitate natural sounds. And um, I think acapella music is particularly important to listen to now. The sounds of people's voices change when their environment changes. And of course, migration has caused so much movement of peoples. Some groups of people are trying to preserve their traditional songs and their traditional music, but they're in a new place where that wood or that metal or that or whatever the environmental sound is, isn't available. And so I think there would be a lot of a lot of percussion and a lot of change. I think of those, uh, my music colleagues will kill me because I don't know my centuries, but I want to say 19th century tone poem composers like Camille Saint-Saëns who wrote the Dance Macabre and it, it was, it's kind of tone poems are like painting a picture of what is happening. And I think that would be especially appropriate in this type of environment. Yeah. So, and I think I asked you before, you know, what, if you were to compose a, a piece of music that reflects our environmental crisis, our climate crisis, am I hearing right from what you just said that there would, it would be percussive, it would be connected to the local environment from which the music is composed and performed because it would use those very materials of the earth and of nature. Am I hearing you right on that or, or is that a- You're a, absolutely hearing me right yeah. on that. And I think some of the, some yeah. of the things that you find in uh, uh, what we used to 
what we used to do to go find music recordings, we'd go to a record store and there'd be categories and, and uh, there'd be this world music genre, which didn't really mean any, anything, but it was sort of a catch-all. There was a lot of this environmental sounding music with rain sticks and drums because drums have, you know, in the past and in the present, drums tend to be something that people gather around. And this is, uh, we're talking about symbiosis and relationships and many, many traditions use many different types of drums and other percussive, percussive instruments. But I think there would be an alternation. There would be a going back and forth between the cries and the sounds of, I don't know what could make the sound of millions of human beings moving from one border across a river or through a desert or to the political borders of another country. I think it would have many pieces and parts, but there would be lots of very quiet moments with just one sound, which I hope would, would be the reflective part of the piece. Yeah, and I, I, I know what you say about the when we used to go find these musical categories in, in music stores, it was either world music or what they would call new age music, just which has a, a kind of a level of religious connotation. It's world music on yeah. a loop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, historically, Carl, have we have we found ourselves as as humans been in a have we found ourselves in similar situations throughout our history in which we are having to confront existential crises confront uh, crises as big as this i mean when we think about the climate crisis i mean it's it, it, perhaps no greater or larger challenge that we face have there been have there been any other similar times in history and if so what what can be learned from those periods I guess I, I think of that as a historian, it's, it's kind of about scale, right? So if, if people lived in England in the 1800s and they saw soot everywhere from the Industrial Revolution and they coughed from, you know, think of the Dickinsonian kind of world, you know, for those people, that was an existential crisis. For people living on an island where fires were destroying their environment, you know, certainly, and, and people have struggled with these same questions in small groups. But now that we have a global vision and a global scale, I think we're realizing it is an existential crisis to all of us. Um, you know, I think historically about like Boone, you know, Appalachian State University's growth was in the 1970s when so many people wanted to escape to nature, right? They wanted to come to the mountains to ski or come to the mountains to hike. And I think there's always been a strong movement at, at ASU to environmentalism. Um, but now we're in a totally different thing. I mean, now we're seeing the oceans are rising and we're all going to die. We're seeing not just a few trees dying on the forest, but we're seeing, you know, tremendous crisis. In my students, I, I feel a different sense than when I look back in history. I, I, I feel a sense of depression and powerlessness, and yet they're beginning to turn that into movements that hopefully will have some effect. I'm always so excited when I see people take a small action towards this big issue that they call environmental crisis. But let's just be honest. I mean, in the 20th century, off the North Carolina coast, the water has gone up eight inches, and they're predicting it might go up 30 inches, which means that in 
your lifetime, you might see an area along the eastern part of North Carolina about the size of the Smoky Mountain National Park underwater. So, you know, it's hard to find a historical parallel to something as global and as large of a perspective as we're dealing with yeah. right now. Jackie, do you, do you see this in students you have in sustainable development? This, I mean, is there a sense of despair or is there a sense of, well, it is, but we're going to keep fighting anyways, and that's why I'm, I'm taking classes in this subject? Yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly say that, um, you know, part of, part of the degree is, is managing um, that, that sense of despair and, and, and helping as faculty, helping students understand, uh, we spend a lot of that. So the way we approach sustainable development is with social justice at its core. And so we often turn to other social movements um, to also give, situate uh, this environmental movement within a broader context uh, so that they can see things that were thought to be at the time to be impossible that that we can overcome those challenges there was a time for example that apartheid was believed to be something that would never be changed right um and so kind of giving them examples is, is something i spent a lot of time so that we don't just dwell in that despair um, because if that's what we do then then we lose the uh capacity for agency or capacity to change things um, but certainly our students understand that climate change is an existential threat. It is, for most of my students, it is their number one concern. It's the number one thing they're voting on. It's the number one thing that preoccupies them. It's the thing that they feel is going to negatively affect their future and it already affects their present. Uh, so they're very cognizant of that. But um, I also think that our students are really um, unique and fantastic people that are very community engaged. I think that's a lot of our orientation is around um, giving to our communities so being active participants in transforming the food system. We've got a lot of students that are involved in supporting the High Country Food Hub run by Blue Ridge Women in Agriculture, uh, Farm Cafe, Farm Full Circle, working with farms, working with hospitality house. So they're, they're putting, um, and I'm if I focus on food politics, I know a bit more about those activities elsewhere, but certainly working on, um, you know, stream rehabilitation, engaging in the climate, uh, there's a climate action collaborative that's led by a number of SD students. And so I think those types of actions are, are so important for them to not um, be overcome by uh, what feels to be uh, impossible at the moment, but it's not. I mean, we, we also spend a lot of time talking about, um, you know, the way in which society and our economy is organized is in fact a social construction. Uh, it has changed, it can change. It's not gonna be easy, um, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. Uh, but certainly I can relate to that, um, that sense of uh, students kind of facing this head on and, and, and feeling anxious about their future. Yeah, and I mean, I, I work in the ACT office and I see students in there very often who are very cognizant of the problems that we face in the world, the climate being one of those, but nevertheless, you know, the alternative is to, to give up or to, to collapse in on oneself to be selfish and say, well, I'm just going to ride this out and try to get mine. But thankfully, and I've been, as long as I've been in higher education doing the similar work, there have always been students who come in the door and say, 
nope, I want to make the world a better place for a wide variety of motivations. And I think one of the keys to that is to think politically. Too often we're preaching to the choir. We, we, we have this kind of segmented society where we gather in our own little tribes and perhaps in Appalachian, our tribe is, is, is looking towards environmentalism. But we need to break out of that and try to talk to people that are worried about their jobs. You know, and try to say to people, we're not just trying to save, you know, an insect that is endangered. By saving the insect, we're trying to do something that is in your self-interest because there's something in their genome that might save you from dying of cancer someday. So I, I do think we need to keep trying to conceptualize this in a way that reaches out beyond the choir. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's um, communicating across difference is, is certainly key. And I think, you know, one of the things that is, um, you know, right for the future, if there's the right kinds of, you know, political structures that support it, is that, you know, we, shifting towards a renewable energy economy in, in real earnest actually will, will generate tons of jobs. Uh, it's a total misnomer that's that's at odds with um, a strategy that supports the economy um, but right now we have subsidy structures in place uh, that give oil and gas an upper hand not to mention the role of lobbying that we, we spend quite a bit of time talking about in the politics of sustainable development of course yeah and i want to uh, get us to the upcoming election here in just a minute but before we do jackie a little bit more time with you in your area of uh, particular expertise so it's my understanding that you look closely at agriculture and, and perhaps food. Uh, can you say a little bit more? I don't even have a clear question here, but can you say a little bit more about this relationship to the climate crisis and uh, food? We all got to eat. Uh, so, you know, pretty, pretty important. So maybe can you just say a little bit about that? How is our concern for the environment uh, most critical to what winds up on our table, kitchen table? Yeah, thanks for that question, Brian. Um, so, first of all, I think that with regards to two things in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, not only carbon dioxide, but often methane, uh, agriculture is both the, the problem and solution. Um, also, with regards to freshwater resources that are increasingly scarce. Um, agriculture, and that's, uh, agriculture in the United States and kind of global averages, but it consumes 81% of freshwater resources. And so that's why I spend a lot of time um, analyzing food and agriculture as a kind of solution uh, to the climate crisis because it is both a huge contributor to um, emissions, uh, but also uh, you know, over withdrawal of freshwater resources. But if we reorient our agricultural systems, it could also have a huge impact on emissions. Uh, right now, we have normalized uh, a lot of what I study as the level of the kind of global food economy. Uh, so I'm interested in kind of um, relationships between countries in particular. My research actually is based in Ghana, looking at the role of U.S. development assistance in promoting commercial seed sector and um, genetically modified seed in Ghana. Um, but I'm interested in the ways in which a lot of the emphasis kind of of the World Bank's agriculture for development agenda keeps reiterating the importance of global food chains. 
Um, global food chains are really problematic if we take into account uh, the carbon footprints of all of this transportation of, of, of foods. Um, what I would really love to see is something that we already see in the high country, uh, love to see more of, and that's a kind of relocalization of agriculture. In addition to having uh, an emphasis on regenerative agriculture, uh, where we're working with closed loop systems, uh, we're trying to reduce the impact and use of uh, chemical fertilizers and agrochemicals, uh, kind of understanding the importance of uh, pollinator species of plants that can encourage um, right now, uh, as many of us probably know, uh, bees are in decline and bees are a critical actor in, in our global food system. And so I think if we were to kind of relocalize, not to say that we're gonna get rid of our Bordeaux wine, there could be special categories in which we can continue to have those relationships, but certainly our veggies are just as delicious as the veggies coming from California without the same kind of footprint. And so uh, for me, that's, that's a critical component into how we are able uh, to reduce our ecological footprint. And also that speaking of you know, the economy, that also helps to foster economies uh, that are um, more local and community oriented um, and often in that, uh, when, as we're talking about relationships, when those relationships are made uh, more intimate, people are less likely to engage in kind of exploitative practices. So I think we see in general with a turn towards local agriculture, a reduction in some of the harmful exploitative practices that are embedded within these kind of global values. Yeah, so there's a lot there, but just real quickly, I just want to pick up on something that you mentioned with regards to your work in Ghana. And, you know, I've spent some time in the Irrawaddy Delta in Myanmar and more recently along coastal areas in Indonesia. And for them, the, the climate crisis is not, is not uh, it's real. I mean, Carl mentioned, you know, what's going to happen here in the state of North Carolina with rising sea levels. And, you know, maybe to a degree it's, it's abstract or certainly that's, oh, that's on the other coast. You talk to people in local communities and it's, it's quite con concrete. So Susie, I'm, I'm interested in your experience in Namibia or South Africa or elsewhere or, or Jackie or, or any of you, uh, what, what have you seen uh, just quickly in terms of what, based on your research, how is this crisis affecting folks who you know and areas where you've researched? For, for um, Namibia and South Africa, the number one um, sort of change that I've seen in the last 20 years, especially in South Africa, has been the refugee population. It was, you know, around the time of apartheid. Um, they even wrote into their constitution something about the people in Botswana because they were so commonly migrating to South Africa, but now there are people from many, many parts of the continent coming into Namibia, uh, which at one time was part of South Africa, but there's a big desert uh, area there. And, um, and this, of course, in the impoverished areas, the townships, the rural areas where services are not reliable, um, it is it is definitely problematic for resources and in particular educational resources because in those parts of the world 
uh, although the constitution, for example, in South Africa is written such that anyone who dwells within the boundaries has a right to education. If on day one, the guardian or parents can't produce the documentation of birth to uh, be admitted to school and all the related types of documents one needs for identity, then they are turned away. So now there's a growing uneducated population from years of refugee relocation having a great deal to do with resource, political resource battles over land use and water use resulting from changes in the climate. And so it just, the, um, the cycle goes over and over and over again. And in these two countries that we're talking about, Namibia and South Africa, where unemployment is really, uh, I mean, they've been at emergency levels for a very long time with HIV, AIDS, and tuberculosis also going on before the pandemic that we, we are so well aware of. Um, more unemployment and less education it, it is just fanning the fire. Yeah. Of, of what started as environmental problems. Yeah, yeah. so it's not, uh, I mean, it's today, right? I mean, it's, these issues are not to, not something that, uh, oh, if we don't act now, uh, we're gonna have some consequences in 20 years, but today it's affecting, affecting real folks. So we have an election coming up um, and this is, uh, this is uh, an issue in the election. So my Republican friend says that she is deeply concerned for the environment too. What is the Republican approach to the environment? So taking a conservative point of view seriously with regards to the environment, how would you, in, in your understanding of it, how, how do you think Republicans approach this issue? I'll take a stab at that. <clears throat> you know, Republicans, tend to try to see a, a market solution that capitalism and the free enterprise system through competition and the invisible hand will lead us to solve our societal needs. You can almost get Anne Rand here about, you know, the selfishness is a good thing. Um, I do think that there are some very serious Republican environmentalists that have some really good ideas for short-term specific projects. But the problem, I think, in our contemporary political debate is that we're not going big enough. We're, we're talking about what are we going to do about this little thing or that thing. But often, I think that the problem with Republican rhetoric is that it is very, very narrow. And we're going to have to change our entire economic structure. And I think there's a lot of Republicans feel very uncomfortable about that. Mm. Because the invisible hand has a lot of theological overtones. Can you say more, uh, just a bit about that, Laura? Well, just that, that somehow um, the market is being guided in some way. Um, and, and I mean, in, in this way, it, it, it becomes an anthropomorphized thing that seems to have its own agency as opposed to being made up of the agency of all these other actors who remain invisible. And so the invisible hand can look like divine providence. Uh, and I think that is a, a frequent evangelical Republican interpretation of um, how the market will solve things. Um, 
but I do think it, it is, as you were saying, it's, as Carl was saying, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't look structurally, it looks at small pieces, but not, not sort of the whole picture. And just to add to that quickly, there is, the real action here is the debate within the Republican Party between those who are just deniers and those that are struggling to come up with some solutions. I think the Democratic Party has a kind of clearer, more consistent view of the problem, even if we might disagree on the degree of change that's going to be required. It would seem to me, at least my experience has been, there's no scholarship here, but I mean, my experience then is conservative friends would articulate very much they love nature in some of the ways we were, we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, solutions might be a little bit different. So, I mean, I would go so far as to say, I, I, it, I don't, it's a bit of a fallacy to say that Republicans are somehow not concerned about, not concerned about the environment. They may approach it in a different way and solutions might be different. But I, I don't think it would be entirely correct to say it's just completely not uh, an important issue. As a matter of fact, many hunters and Second Amendment defenders of guns are very concerned with the environment. Very much, very, and that's a bit of who I'm, I'm thinking about, actually, in my comment. Okay, my Democratic friend says Republicans have it all wrong in the environment. What does he mean by that? What is the, what is the Democratic uh, encapsulation of the Democratic response to the environment? I mean, for one, can I just say that I don't think that, I think there is actually a division within the Democratic Party as well. I think that you've got, um, you know, the kind of uh, progressive left of the party that wants the Green New Deal. I'm happy to see, because I am also um, an advocate for a Green New Deal, um, that the Biden-Harris plan incorporates some of those policy solutions. Um, but if you look at um, the track record of the Obama-Biden administration, it was heavy on natural gas. So there is, there has always been a kind of divide between, between both parties uh, for different reasons on environmental issues. Um, what I, I would also uh, add is that, um, thankfully, there is a, a united recognition that climate change is an existential threat in the Democratic Party. Um, but as we'll talk about tomorrow um, in class, uh, George H.W. Bush, the first George Bush, um, recognized climate change. He talked about it. He campaigned on it. Um, Richard Nixon was the one that set up the EPA and the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. Um, and it's really, I, I point to Merchants of Doubt. Um, it's an excellent book by Naomi Rescues and Eric Conway uh, that talks about the ways in which this denialism uh, was kind of produced, that in fact, it isn't something that kind of innately just originates from the Republican Party. Um, so last question here, uh, thinking about the climate crisis, you've got 30 seconds on November 4th with President Trump or President-elect Biden. What would you want to say to the victor? What question might you want to ask, given the urgency of this issue? How about you, Professor Ammon? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, you got limited time. Seconds. The president, president hmm. says, <laughs> <laughs> right, he's busy. He's got a lot of people who want to talk to him. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that I, I think a key thing has to be thinking through how are we going to approach renewable energies in order uh, to 
in order to slow, I don't know that we can stop, at least not right away, what's happening. So how are you going to do it now? Uh, go January 17th. What are you going to change? Susie? Uh, well, I guess if I were talking to Vice President Biden, um, <laughs> I would probably say, um, are you or, or are you not for fracking? And uh, what exactly are you for? And um, what are you going to do first? And who are your partners are going to be? And which relationships do you think we ought to repair okay. on the first day? And I'm going to hope I'm standing behind Susie and just point to her what she said, what she said. I think, I think we have to remember that we've been talking about relationships for this whole conversation. And we have the, we have taken climate change as a, um, I don't know, maybe we've been, be, we've been hiding behind it, but we've damaged a lot of relationships in our denial about it. And so I'm really interested in that repairing and, cultivating new relationships. Carol? Mr. President, you have been elected to only four years. What are you going to do with this, this chance you have to go down in history? You know, do, you, do you want to be remembered as one of the last people holding on to an old paradigm that uh, makes you a villain of the environment? A hundred years from now, the paragraph in the textbook will say, President so-and-so failed us. Or do you want to take this opportunity to finally turn the bend and see that there's not a difference between the environment and growth, like, like Jackie was saying, but to, to build this into a new thing that we can see that our future is with the environment. So, Mr. President, you know, people in the middle of the Renaissance didn't walk around saying, boy, isn't the Renaissance wonderful? And people in the Industrial Revolution didn't know what to call it. So not sure exactly what you ought to do, but how do you want to get out of history? Be bold or go home. <laughs> Jackie, what do you got? <laughs> um, I, I would ask the president to uh, consider uh, the you know, young people and what kind of future that they may have, they're on track to experience. And, and what are they going to be doing about about that future where climate change already wreaks havoc on so many Americans' lives. Um, how are we going to step up to meet the urgency of the situation? How are they going to confront the oil and gas lobby that has been resistant to any changes? And how are we going to kind of make, make amends? Um, I think that there is a real need um, to reflect and, and and work to repair our relationships or our natural yeah, really good well thanks so much and if you're an Appalachian State student listening we all hope that you get out and vote uh this coming November. So we've been talking about been talking with four great Appalachian State University uh faculty members Dr. Laura Ammon Associate Professor of Religious Studies Dr. Carl Campbell Professor of History Dr. Jackie Ignatova, did I get that right? Ignatova, I'm so sorry. And uh, professor, assistant professor of sustainable development and Dr. Susie Mills, uh, professor of, of music education and scholar in uh, South Africa at the University of Johannesburg. I'm Ryan McCarg, I direct academic civic engagement in the ACT office of Appalachian State University. And if you are a student here at the school, we would love to see you in the ACT office so that you might act 
uh, and engage in the things that are of concern and interest to you. My thanks to graduate assistants who work in the ACT office, Angela Eccles and Megan Ashelman, who uh, do a lot of the behind the scenes technical work. Daniel Lightfoot, who has also helped us a great deal with the technical aspects of this podcast. And Rishan Robinson, who gave us the idea for the podcast in the first place. Thanks so much, uh, folks, and we appreciate the conversation.